think I had more clarity as a naive youth. <laughs> this is Two Authors, Two Books, a public humanities podcast created by Tavi Gonzalez and brought to you through the Susie Newhouse Center for the Humanities at Wellesley College. Tavi is a poet and professor at Wellesley College, where he teaches courses on American queer literature and culture, British and American modernism, and the 20th century novel. Today, Tavi talks with Joseph Sermatori and Emmeline Butterfield-Rosen. Joseph is an associate professor of English at Skidmore College, where he focuses on performance studies with an eye towards drama, opera, and musical theater. He studies how queer theory and the theories of aesthetics intersect with this area of performance. He'll be discussing his 2021 book, Baroque Modernity and Aesthetics of Theater. Our other guest, Emmeline Butterfield-Rosen, is the Associate Director of the Williams Graduate Program in the History of Art at the Clark Art Institute. Emmeline specializes in modern art, especially focusing on how histories of art, biology, and psychology intersect, and particularly how those studies combine with the history of sexuality. She will be talking about her 2021 book, Modern Art and the Remaking of Human Disposition. Both Joseph and Emmeline were finalists for the Modernist Studies Association First Book Prize. Okay, uh, thank you for joining me uh, for the second episode of Two Authors, Two Books. Um, I'm very excited to have you guys in conversation. Uh, I'm Tavi Gonzalez at Wellesley College. Um, if you could just introduce yourselves really briefly, and then we will uh, we'll start with the icebreaker. My name is Emmeline Butterfield-Rosen. Um, I'm an art historian. Um, currently, I, I teach in the graduate program in the history of art, uh, the Williams Graduate Program in the History of Art in Williamstown at the Clark Art Institute. Um, I'm about to move to the Institute of Fine Arts at NYU. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> And I'm Joseph Sermatori. I'm an associate professor of English at Skidmore College, uh, where my research and teaching focuses on modern and contemporary theater drama and performance, the relationship of literature to philosophy, critical theory, and a few other related topics. It's so great to be here. Thanks for inviting us. You're welcome. I'm very excited to have this conversation. Um, so the first part uh, of this podcast is the icebreaker, which I usually draw from the Proust questionnaire. And I asked you guys to look over some of the questions. Um, so, uh, Emmeline, do you want to start us off with one of your um, one of your questions? Which one did you select? Most overrated virtue, moderation. I, I said the same thing. I also <laughs> chose the most overrated virtue, <laughs> classical virtue of temperance. <laughs> oh, so, <laughs> so we're very much on the same page. Totally. We absolutely are. I'm a big believer in the Dan Savage, everything in moderation, including moderation. There you go. That sounds appropriate, uh, considering your book is on the Baroque, Joe. Right. I also love a good cocktail. So temperance, <laughs> I mean, temperance is for the bird. Exactly. Um, I guess I will, um, I'll use the same motto as I had before, which is it's never so bad it can't get any worse, which is like my, uh, my, <laughs> my very pessimistic um, adulting approach to life these days. Uh, I'm a cautious pessimist, I, I should say, uh, which you know has served me pretty well so far. Um, so uh, thank you again for joining us. Uh, so the, the structure of this interview, as as you know, is a mutual interview. I wanted to get you guys into conversation about your uh, your respective books, and I guess I, I you know I have some questions that uh, I wanted to share with you, and I also wanted to have you also you know direct the conversation as you see fit. Um, 
So I guess I'll start with the first question, which is the one that I, I thought was really interesting to me. Uh, so Emmeline, as you know, when we started talking about uh, inviting you to this pod, you um, you had actually selected Joe as, as as your interlocutor. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about what you saw in Joe's work and your own and how you see that conversation um, or how you saw that conversation. Well, um I, as I, rec- I sort of was eager to be in conversation with someone else who's not an art historian because I, I, I enjoy, you know, dialogue across disciplines, and I thought, especially, you know, in in this context with modernist studies, it is is interdisciplinary, and I thought that was great. But I was, and you know, I hadn't read Joe's book at the time, but I was just attracted to the title because I saw that, um, because I, you know, I think. I'm very focused on body language, corporeal posture and gesture. And I thought that gesture might be central to a book about the Baroque. And I, I was right. Um, <laughs> I also saw that it talked about four, uh, uh, three, four saints in three acts. I always miss, miss, mix up the three and the four. Um, and, and that's just a, a work that I find extremely fascinating. I've always been interested in Florian Stedheimer's work. I, it was one of the first things that I wrote about when I was starting in graduate school. Um, so I, I was just, I, I, I felt a, a, a pull towards that. That's fabulous. Um, I also uh, was amazed to see all the many overlaps between our book. I mean, we, we, have, slight, we have different theoretical and methodological um, assemblages, definitely, but there were so many shared interests and concerns. And I loved that you ended with, uh, with Nijinsky and the, the Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn. I love that you incorporated performance into your study. I wanted to ask about that maybe a little bit later about what motivated that that shift um, other than maybe just attraction, desire to write about it. But I thought that that was really fabulous to see how we we were both kind of culminating with this kind of um, this set of studies about, you know, for example, the Ballet Russe or these kinds of Americans who were trying to approximate what the Ballet Russe were trying to do, bringing together a kind of a, a total work of art, uh, somehow different than what Wagner had conceived. So mm-hmm. I thought that was really uh, amazing in terms of just a shared set of concerns. Yeah, I think that um, my my interest in ending with after uh, to me, you know, the it seems extremely natural to include um, the history of performance and the history of art once you change the metric to something like body language and 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 gesture because that's a that's a, a metric that kind of crosses media. I think that's that's also not particularly innovative idea for me. It's like baked into the foundation of the discipline. It was something that A.B. Varberg, what you know, he was interested in performance and static media, and he kind of went between them rather seamlessly. And so, uh, to me, it, it felt very natural. And actually, my my book grew out of trying to understand the ballet the re- and I worked backwards. Um, that was the first thing that I was really, really um, invested in. What for you, what was the, was there one work that sort of was the core that everything grew out of? I'd say actually for me, it was in, it was the, the Nietzsche writings on Baroque, which mm. so kind of disoriented and upended my received understanding of it. And the, the, the challenge of trying to reckon with how he was attempting to understand Wagner as a, a species of the Baroque's endurance and its potential return. Uh, so kind of really counterintuitive on its f- face. That really obsessed me for a while. And at the same time, um, 
really trying to make sense of Walter Benjamin's uh, book on the German Trauerspiel, which was so opaque. Um, so those, those two things were really the, the kind of primary obsessions that drove the book, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I was interested to hear you say that ballet was one of the, I was going to ask a question, like what was the most, what was the first case study that you envisioned? And uh, I thought that almost because the way that you're just des- describing this complete reorganization of human disposition during this period, it reminded me of something like Martha Graham, like the kind of shift of the center of gravity in ballet downward, you know, mm-hmm. the kind of a, she seemed to kind of a, presiding spirit over the book, even though she, she doesn't show up in the book. So I was curious to see that ballet was really what motivated the, what motivated the ideas at their outset. That's really fascinating. Just, just the, the presentation of the body in these, in like in profile, in, in this very emphatic way that I saw in, in that ballet where, you know, because it's, because they're living bodies and the, the posture is so visibly contorted when, when it's applied to a a living body and you, you see that staged it, it certain of the kind of problematics and the artificiality of that and its strangeness become, you know, hyper present. Um, So it, it kind of, that's how I became interested. And then I kind of had to work backwards to form a kind of historiographic framework for what is this presentation of the body and thinking about, ways of thinking about bas relief and Egyptian art. And that's kind of how I, I got to work kind of trying to build a history like a a history of art framework for what Nijinsky was doing. So one of the questions that, that, that Tavi, you pre-circulated for us was about, um, could, could I expand a bit about the, the claim that I make in the book that the Baroque named something like a stubborn iron underlying condition of modernity one whose latency runs in theater from the time of Diderot to that of Ibsen. And this also seems like a point of, com- of, of, of similarity between our two books, Emelyn, is that in, in, the, in the, the introduction to Baroque modernity, one of the things I'm trying to think about is a very influential claim that was made in theater studies by the Hungarian, uh, German-speaking Hungarian critic, Peter Zondi, mm-hmm. who argued that the concept of drama itself is a historical uh, is, a, is a historical concept, a historical apparatus that emerges in the time of the Renaissance. So kind of similar to the claim that you make in your book about the, the normative dispositions of the human figure with the contrapposto emerging around the time of, for example, da Vinci, you know, da Vinci's sketches of the human body. Zondi made the argument that the, the concept of drama emerges, emerges during the time of the Renaissance and is the creation of a newly self-conscious uh, organism, the human being, who creates drama as a medium to fix a picture of himself that's entirely rooted in the in the structure of interpersonal relationships. And um, this concept of drama presupposes a human subject that's entirely capable of self-disclosure. So mm-hmm. that understands itself, knows itself, can speak speak fully in, in, in response to its own conscious desires. So it's the moi that you're citing yeah. often in your book. So... I'm not from, this is fascinating and I'm not familiar with this concept of drama. Is that a concept of drama that's like explicitly or implicitly opposed to like tragedy, Greek tragedy? Uh, I think what um, what Zondi might say is that it emerges in the Renaissance through Renaissance re readings of, for example, Aristotle's writings on tragedy. It's a, mm. It is a kind of a Renaissance neoclassical, neo-Aristotelian concept of drama. 
And the, the argument that Zondi, I think, very influentially made was that that concept gets refined over the course of the Renaissance into the 17th century. And by the time of Diderot, you know, Michael Fried's great avatar has mm. achieved a certain autonomy. And the, the way that it's achieved its autonomy is by exorcising from the medium all of the moments of direct address to the spectator, including the prologue, the chorus, songs, epilogues, yeah. uh, e even moments of aside. So all of those moments that might invite the temptation to a certain frontality, even if it's the most oblique form of frontality. So, you know, the argument I'm trying to make in the book is that there's been a certain normative conception of drama that emerges during the Renaissance that seeks to kind of eliminate or eradicate all of those potential, potentially frontal moments in, in the, in the uh, service of consolidating a normative conception of the human. Zondi's argument was that that conception of the human and that conception of drama fell into crisis in the 18th really in the 1880s, around the time of Ibsen, which is close to, you know, again, close to that time, 1870s, close to that Manet, Courbet moment. I've tried to link that in the book and in some of, some of my other writings, um, less to the kind of Darwinian and Freudian um, context that you're offering and more mm. towards a general uh, crisis in the understanding of communication, the kind of linguistic turn, the yeah. sense that if words don't fully encompass the meanings that we presuppose them to have, and this concept of full self-disclosure upon which drama is predicated can't, can't be operative any longer. Um, so in, 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 in what I've been trying to do with this book is to show how um, there was already an understanding of that inoperativity of language in the Baroque period tied to the notion of allegory, and that this concept of drama comes into being and kind of attempts to suppress that allegorical um, that allegorical dimension of language. And that when drama itself uh, falls into crisis in the 1870s or 1880s, those allegorical uh, energies, to use a, a lack of a better term, kind of that are still residual and never really fully suppressed, kind of reemerge in a sense. So that's the, that's, I think, we, I think we have a slight difference of emphasis, but uh, I think we're charting a very similar historiography in a way. I, I think so too. I mean, the the distinction that you, to me, very very helpful for understanding your argument in in was in the Nietzsche chapter on basically just and maybe this is too telegraphic to, to distill your entire argument, but but that it is parabasis as opposed to mimesis. Yeah, address rather than representation. Yeah, that that was very helpful to me. I guess the question, I mean, you and for you, I guess you're associating. Uh, moments of address parabasis with frontality I guess one of the my as a formal mechanism um in visual art I think one of the great questions uh, one of my larger questions and one that I'm not that I that I failed to actually work out is whether kind of frontality does not mean um to be facing in the, in the way in which I have defined and understood it it could very much mean um, it, there, there's a form of facing um, in kind of bodily orientation, but to be in pure profile is to be in a posture of frontality. A posture of frontality means that there is no, in, 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 in the kind of definition, the art historical definition that I work with, which is this kind of absurd um, Danish, art, Danish art historian, um, classical 
art historian Julius Long, uh, who who defines the term frontality and, and introduces it to the art historical lexicon, and he describes frontality as a visual strategy before the invention of a visual form for, as you were mentioning before this, you know, the, the idea of a figure with a moi, um, a me. Um, but it, it basically means the absence of lateral twisting or torsion in the body from the genitals to the top of the head. And so there's no obliquity. Frontality just means the absence of obliquity. So it could be a figure in pure profile facing away from the viewer and not addressing them. Of course, though, that perfect non-address can be perceived as a form of kind of theatrical theatrical address and acknowledgement. And I mean, one of the, 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 I would, the word for me, that's maybe more important than theatricality is exhibitionism, like as a, as an actual kind of psychological diagnostic term, it's, it's also in exactly this moment, I think 1877, um, when it's coined and, and, and that, you know, the, the concept of exhibitionism and the display of the body in ways that the audience can perceive clearly in its silhouette and contour was very clearly linked with exhibitionism in um, Afternoon of a Fawn. And I think there's also that element with, you know, the figure who's so important for me, the, 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 I call her the, the mistress of the monkey in, in the Grand Jot and the way in which she's standing with the bus, the, in, in the precise posture for the bustle to be exhibited most prominently could be seen as a theatrical self-aware exhibitionistic kind of frontal form of address. She's not addressing the audience with her face, but rather with her ass. Yeah, yeah, that's fabulous. And um, I think that, uh, I think that you really get to that. You have such a wonderful uh, section, particularly on the idea of radieur, the stiffness, mm, stiffness yes. of frontality. Yes. And, uh, and, you know, in my own book, I seem to recall that I make the point that, uh, that it's not always necessary for this moment of optic coordination between the performer and the audience. You know, the face, it, the face of the actor making eye contact with the face of the audience for there to be a scene of address. Although yes. that, that's kind of the typical Brechtian maneuver. Yes. Um, I try to make the point that a certain gesture completely divorced from any visual orientation of gazes, a gesture can address the audience in that way. Yes. A gesture can be a kind of moment of a returned gaze, despite where the actor's face is looking. The Klimt chapter was was more difficult for me, um, I, I would say. It was the hardest, it was the most difficult for me by far, because um, I don't find Klimt to be as... Um, kind of complex, ambivalent, and dialectical an artist as like Nijinsky or Seurat. Um, but actually, I think because of that, it was it was in some way the chapter where I had um, a kind of methodological breakthrough that sounds pompous, but where the kind of the cognitive linguistic basis of some of the mechanisms that I was trying to understand became clearest to me. And then I, then I were, was able to understand and like distill some sort of substratum of my unconscious thinking about what was going on. And sometimes I think it takes a, a lack of subtlety, a great lack of subtlety to kind of have have certain mechanisms worked out with such clarity. 
That was a chapter I noticed you really incorporated a lot of discussion of metaphor and those metaphors that we live by. Yeah, yeah. Um, the yeah, sort of embodied cognition theory became quite important to me in that chapter. And just kind of yeah, the the significance of of weight um metaphors for the the concept of thinking, um, which I believe is kind of underlying the way the the way in which the the response to these kinds of postures that is elicited are these kind of unconscious inferential structures. Um, and, and like methodologically, what do you, what do I do with that? I mean, I, that's, that's kind of a deus ex machina methodologically from the way that I was trained, you know, and I don't know, I sense that my, my, my impression, and I would be interested in what you think, Joe, is I think I'm a more conservative kind of like, uh, I don't know if the word conservative, but maybe more empirical um, historian than less a theorist than you. Well, a few things. One that I think you really marry a certain sense of historicist contextual detail, marshalling really impressively a whole wide ranging set of discourses, perception history, criticism, new understandings of psychology, of the body, of evolutionary science, all of these things. You marry that historicist uh, contextualization method with an amazing formalist ability to read these works and describe them and make meaning out of uh, the formal uh, configurations of them, the details of them. So that was really impressive for me. Um, my own work methodologically has been really um, influenced by, by Benjamin's critique of historicism. I, I draw uh, really amply in my in my reading and in my scholarship on historicist writings, but from a from a writing standpoint myself, I tend to think of myself as working in a more in a more Marxist tradition, a more speculative tradition. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, it did it did strike me that uh, there were slight differences in in the ways that we went about approaching our materials. They're not slight differences, big differences. I mean, you you come in. In your in your prologue, saying that this this topic kind this topic came to you through an engagement with contemporary art, um, and your involvement with contemporary art, and then your exit, where the the epilogue you're talking about Jack Smith and and the this our situatedness and kind of ecological crisis and financial crisis. So, like you answer to the world, to our world more than I do, because I feel incapacitated to do so. So I admired that in your work, but I just, in, in connecting this kind of historical episteme so clearly to the present, I, I, can you say more about that? Cause I thought it was really interesting. Thanks. Yeah. My, I mean, that's just an instinct on my part, methodologically about wanting mm-hmm. to, to find in the, in the past, those um, moments of openness or those moments of answerability that make it responsive to what we're looking at it, you know, from the present. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to look at it from the standpoint of how, reconstructing how it really was, though I do uh, acknowledge the importance of that um, as a different methodology. I, I'm trying to look at it from the vantage point of somebody who has an admitted, admitted bias towards it and an admitted perspective towards it. Uh, or, so, um, and I'm also trying to offer just a kind of a, in, a, in another sense, like a kind of a, almost like a Nietzschean genealogy, a sense that the, there is a connection between the, 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 the past and the present that's been kind of papered over or covered over that uh, looking at the past through the eyes of the present can reveal more than, I think even more than um, the kind of political questions of our 
of our current present moment, the, the origins of the book came from, from almost like just my kind of my professional background as a working performance critic, a working theater critic, you know, trying to understand people who are making performance right now, and also trying to understand it in its connections to the past, that um, nothing comes from nowhere was my uh, instinct about it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to also know what, for you, Emily, was there anything that had to kind of drop out? Was there anything that you really wanted to include that had to fall by the wayside? Was there any, I'm thinking of like the process that led to the writing of the dissertation version of this book. And there were like three or four different ideas I wanted to maybe incorporate. And you just can't include everything. Was there anything that you were excited about maybe studying or looking at that uh, if you had another chapter to, to add that you would have wanted to include? Um, no, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I don't, you know, that's, it's, it's a good question because like, I think, you know, being someone who studies the history of psychoanalysis, you know, the question of what is a case and are the, and what is exemplarity and how do we, um, make broad inferences from specific examples, something like just methodologically, I'm very, very, this is the word that I'm always like screaming at my students, like writing on top of their papers in large pink letters, like concrete, um, I just really, um, I, 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 it was extremely important to be very concretely rooted in this, in, in objects and have the argument unfold as a kind of, um, exposition of specific objects. And, but, but the, uh, there's a certain kind of density to these objects that I, I did not encounter another example of an object with that kind of density. I mean, Sheer textural density was a word that Hofmannsthal used to describe Afternoon of a Fawn. And I think that all of these works have that. And so there are many layers that allow, while still staying incredibly rooted uh, to an object, uh, one object in its history, so that everything kind of ramifies back to the concrete there, there's a lot of layers that allow the different pieces to come into play in, in these works because they're very, they're very densely auto-referential and also kind of works based on other works. I don't know what what that what that would have been, or it one hasn't announced itself to me as like an absence, but obviously certain of the formal strategies, like the 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 sense of weightlessness, the dis- de-emphasis on hands and feet, the lack of torsion and twist they're kind of formally quite diffuse strategies, but an object that uses those strategies and reflects on them is, is a rarer thing. Well, and your book also has, I think the really, it's as an aesthetic object, it has, I think the real beauty of going from, as you say, in the introduction from how, how is it standing in the, with poses and then to uh, sitting with the Beethoven Denkmal and then to lying down with the, I mean, it, it kind of recapitulates that like uh, triptych structure that you see in Pazuzas. Is there's something quite beautiful about that. It's a nice through line. To that, that only came in the end, you know, it's me tying things up with a bow. That's that, that that's maybe a little, you know, neat, cute and neat on my part, but that, that was not part of the structure, the, the conceptualization of the book. It was something that kind of clarified afterwards. That, but, makes, that makes sense, but I, I found it convincing. I found it really <laughs> It gives it a nice degree of finish and polish. I thought that was great. Um, were, were there things that you left out? 
I feel, I feel your, your project could, could go on. I mean, it, it, there are so much that could be incorporated into your, your project. There were two things that were not, there are two things that I wondered about whether I should include. And also because again, like it's not clear how, when you're writing a first academic book, it's not clear like what the, it's not always clear what the structure of it should be. Um, I knew that I wanted to include the for a second. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Good point. I think I had more clarity as a naive youth. <laughs> uh, I think that um, it was always clear to me that I wanted to include uh, Nietzsche and Mallarmé mm. and Benjamin and Stein because for me, for me, the book is as much about a kind of a theater historical and a theater theoretical backstory to mm. the work that, for example, deconstruction would do. And those figures are all really, are all incre- incredibly significant for the work that Derrida uh, did. Mm. Barbara Johnson, uh, for example, as well. That was very cl- that was very clear. There were other things that I wondered about. Um, for example, when I came across this archival find of Thornton Wilder's essay on the Baroque, I thought maybe there should be a whole chapter just on that. And then, then I also thought because I wanted the book to have a queer, a queer substrate to it, if not necessarily a queer, um, a, a queer subtext, if not necessarily a queer line of, of, of argumentation at the forefront of it. I thought perhaps about uh, W. H. Auden's um, Age of Anxiety, a book, mm. and then also talking about how that had been turned into a its own symphony by Bernstein, and then you know turned into a ballet as well, but. Um, I think I came to the conclusion at the end that, you know, by the time Auden was writing The Age of Anxiety and subtitling it as a Baroque eclogue, that something seemed to have changed. Like by then it was, it was uh, somehow fashionable maybe, or somehow acceptable to claim this kind of Baroque contiguity between early 20th century modern, you know, art or writing and the 17th century, where I, I found something more exciting about the idea of the Baroque as a kind of an illicit uh, or forbidden uh, prehistory, you know. So that that I think at, at that point I I decided to leave that you know to another project. Maybe maybe I'll work on Auden in some other some other context. Do you feel the same about Jack Smith? Well, Jack Jack Smith, <clears throat> Jack, I just felt like there was way too much distance between you know the 1930s <laughs> and then the 1960s. I couldn't justify that, you know. I know. No. My book is making huge historical jumps at all at every moment, but in terms of the four cases, it felt much more concrete to be able to say, "I'm going to root it in this this period between the 1870s and the 1930s when the term seems to undergo a really profound transformation." That seemed more condensed, you know. So make- I, I agree, but I would love to read you on Jack Smith. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely want to write about Jack Smith someday. Will you? I mean, yeah, I, I is hope it's so. something you're planning. Okay. It's not something I'm planning in the moment, but I, I, I definitely hope so. Hope to. What, what, what do you really want to write about next or something that you want to write about? Maybe not for next book, but anything that you feel like you really are excited to write about? Right now, I'm um, in terms of a next kind of like mother load there I'm pulled in a number of different directions and um I, I there's a lot of unfinished business with me and 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 Darwin the question of sexual selection you know because of the way in which I was tethered to objects in this book was not could not be explored but you know a a 
I'm, I'm kind of toying with the idea of doing a book, which is structured more around, I mean, I'm, I'm not toying with it. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it, I guess. I think it will be a more economical book that's kind of rooted around concepts rather than objects, you know, kind of aesthetic design concepts coming out of this moment of, of like design hierarchy and judgment and the way that those concepts are reconfigured or, or rejiggered in this moment in the wake of Darwinian aesthetics. That is something that I I felt that that the work of this book and also uh, another kind of piece that kind of came off of this book, but is really closely related is an article that I wrote called The Hierarchy of Genres and the Hierarchy of Life Forms, which is about animacy and thinking about linguistic animacy hierarchies. Mel Chen's work was really, really kind of came very late in my process and explained something that I had been kind of banging my head against the wall trying to articulate for like eight years about the hierarchy of genres in, in, in painting. So this would be a kind of another, that was a more conceptual project and this would be the same. It's just, it, it's growing out of it right now in, in a much more circumscribed way. I am writing a review of the biography of the first biography of Bronislava Najinska, wow. Najinsky's sister. Oh, wow. Um, uh, Lynn Garofalo wrote this really, really important biography, um, which is kind of the first time that she is, has been given her due. And I'm I'm quite interested in the concept of, of siblinghood and brother-sister relationships in thinking about Najinska and sexuality, marriage, family structures. Um, that's what I'm like, feel a deep desire to do and to kind of like read Russian peasant wedding rituals all day long. <laughs> that sounds awesome. She plays such a fascinating role, a kind of a, a little bit in the wings uh, role in your chapter on Nijinsky, the in terms of your, your brief description of the two of them kind of creating the basic ideas for the choreography together at home. So interesting and intriguing. So I'll be so curious to see your yeah. to the, the book. I think a question with a figure like Bronislava Nijinska is, you know, how to do a feminist, uh, you know, the, the feminist impulse to, to kind of not include Nijinsky in the story. Um, but, but I'm actually, you know, obviously I'm very interested in, I'm interested in the kind of complete imbrication of the two. I see her key works as answering, answering Nijinsky's works and it, she is really fascinating. Um, and it's a short, it's a short piece. I mean, i I often write for art, like reviews for art forum and, and then I, I, I tend to have, and these are like reservoirs of, of pleasure for me. And it, I get to do kind of research that's not, and I could see going kind of, you know, down the garden path with this, go, doing more work than they can take. And, but it's just, it's very fascinating material. And, you know, there hasn't been this archive of information until Lynn Garofalo did this. So I hope there'll probably be a lot more work on Bronislava Najinska now as there should be. How exciting. That's wonderful. What about you? What are you working on? Well, right now, um, right now I'm working uh, after having found this Thornton Wilder SN Baroque, I was invited to prepare a new and much more comprehensive um, annotated uh, collection of his nonfiction uh, lessays, lectures and essays. Ooh. So I've been working on that for the past few years and uh, I'm, I'm hoping that I'll be getting to the end of that project by the end of this year. Um, I spent last summer at the Beinecke kind of trawling through his archives for unpublished uh, and unanthologized uh, nonfiction writings. Beyond that, I have a, a book project that I'm at the very, very beginnings of 
I'm not sure if it's going to be a second book or maybe a book for later on down the line. And if it will take me a long time to write, I'd really like to write about um, Pier Paolo Pasolini mm. and about his engagements with theater. I want to say that your book is beautiful. I mean, it's, 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 there's so much praise I want to heap on it. It's adventurous and, and compelling and persuasive. Thank you. Thank you. And as I said before, there's such a density of contextual source work and such so many wonderful readings and it's so richly footnoted but it's also just such a beautiful my book my goodness it made me so envious of art history as a discipline with all the illustrations and the even just the um the cover design with the detail of poses possesses and the font and it's a beautiful object so it's oh really- thank you i mean that that it's obviously i mean the images are the whole fun of it um and the the pacing of the images that, but you know, that is is an albatross for our discipline because it's a very, very complex and also expensive proposition to get all of these images. Um, and it, it's like a whole industry in itself. I had someone, luckily I was able to have help with that process, but it's like a both, you know, logistically and financially from the institutions that I'm part of, but that's, mm-hmm. it, it, it makes us a very unwieldy, slow moving field mm-hmm. because of these images. So, um, but yeah, my favorite, I think my favorite image in the book is the, I was so, so amazed and proud of myself when I found this is, is the Vladimir Durov um, animal trainer um, who, who Nijinsky performed. He was a, he was, he was a, a, a he became a science scientific kind of animal trainer, but he was a really, really um, popular professional clown in Russia for children. And Nijinsky performed with him as a young child. And th- this amazing picture of him with the dog Bisha standing on his hind legs and smoking a cigarette. That's my favorite image in the book. I also thought all of the images of the Beethoven Denkmal that were then translated into like laxative ads were, I mean, yes. pretty great, pretty great. Yeah, that was pretty wild. There's, there were some moments I have to say where I just, the, I literally laughed out loud reading the book, you know, just because, <laughs> and you relate, you relate your argument with a certain, with, with a wit and a certain kind of knowingness <laughs> is really lovely and makes it a, it's a real page turner. So oh, thank you. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I could not believe those, those characters. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I love working in this period as well. And why I would be very disappointed to work in a later period of time, because mm-hmm. this is the golden age of caricature. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I see that as a form of a visual analysis that's really, really, there's nothing quite like it in terms of isolating aspects of, of works of art and how they're seen and and kind of the most outrageous kind of trains of association. It's such a rich source base and always my my favorite. And I, it would be hard to imagine working in a period when when this form of analysis of art, I mean, can you imagine that that's just not a form of analysis that we have now encountering works of art or even that that existed, you know, past World War One, really. And also just to the point that you were talking about before, you know, about the 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 cost in terms of time and effort and energy and also money to acquire all the images and their permissions. That's a huge effort. And I I wanted for there to be at least kind of 10 at the very least images in the book Mm -hmm. seems to be constantly be making um, references to the visual. Mm -hmm. Yes. In a book about the Baroque, Mm -hmm. but you know, 
in most, in many uh, literary studies, monographs, um, you know, you could do completely without that. So and it, it's, that was unusual for me. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Um, what, what was your question, Emma? Oh, no, I was just going to say the images were helpful. Um, I really loved that one of um, Wagner conducting the Ninth Symphony from within this kind of 18th century Galli de Bibiena, the Margravial Opera House in Bayreuth just like a little glimpse as to what it may have looked like at the moment. Of course, I, I'm speculating about the idea that Nietzsche may have developed some of his critique of Wagner as Baroque in that moment, but it, it seemed a way to lend a certain concreteness uh, or a certain, a certain kind of, to create a kind of scene setting that can invite the reader in, an imaginative scene setting that can invite the reader in, in terms of the spe specific details of time and place. And so that you know that it was great that, that an image like that existed that I could just use that I loved that image it was very revealing to me I mean the the line you know das ornamente pot um uh, was that was a revelation to me because I I didn't really think of the Bayreuth I I'd thought so much about the kind of um the stage mechanics of Bayreuth and the angles of observation and the kind of yeah just orientational angles and the the way in which elimination of ornament on the theatrical body itself was so central to that I it kind of hadn't hadn't become cognizant for me and that was a because it, it it inserts the theater into this whole lineage. I mean, and your connection to Lowe's. So that was a revelation. And then of course the, the picture cemented it. So that was a great, that was really interesting. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Two Authors, Two Books, a public humanities podcast created by Tavi Gonzalez and brought to you through the Susie Newhouse Center for the Humanities at Wellesley College. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, but thank you again. This has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, thank you for letting me be a fly on the wall. Uh, and thank you for joining us on Two Authors, Two Books. Yeah, this is a wonderful uh, exchange.